disgraceful recovering alcoholic. Good morning. Look at that fan. Isn't that sweet? I may not have to use this one at all. <laughs> the serenity prayer says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And a long time ago, I discovered that neither Yawk nor Frigidaire nor any of them had yet invented an air conditioner or a smoke remover that would work for AA. And so I can change things. I don't have to sweat. I can fan. And if that bothers you, that's your problem, not mine. I couldn't believe it when Pacey, and I want to thank him and the committees that invited me and the fruit committee, everybody's been so nice. But when I got the telephone call to come to this conference, my mind went back to 71, 10 years ago. And I'd just like to ask a question. That convention was held in the Heidelberg Hotel in Jackson, Mississippi, 1971. And I believe it was August, I'm not sure of the dates. But were any of you here, there? Hey, isn't that something? Well, I'm telling you, it was the first conference I ever talked to. And I'll tell you how I got there real quick. My sobriety date, in case you're interested, one day at a time, is January the 14th, 1968. And so I had been dry and sober some three years, and I had two marvelous sponsors. I had four or five, really, but two main ones. And one was a district attorney of Lawrence County in Alabama. He's gone to heaven. And I'm sure every time I talk, he's listening, and I try to tell the truth for fear I'll be struck by lightning from Tom Pettis if I don't. And I got a copy of a letter a copy of a letter that he wrote to a gentleman named Woody over here in Mississippi. And that letter said, Dear Woody, yes, Father Hillary will be delighted to, be, to speak at the 26th, I don't think that's right, annual AA conference in Mississippi at the Heidelberg Hotel in Jackson, August the 8th to the 10th, 1971, paragraph. It doesn't matter where you put him on the program because we will be there from Thursday night until the last shot is fired on Sunday morning. Paragraph. I know because I will bring him. <laughs> Sincerely yours, Tom Best. And I said to myself, I read that letter and I said, They've gone too far. They have torn the sheep. There's no way, as you will hear, many of you already know, that part of my drinking career is in Mississippi. And there is no way that I can go to the Heidelberg Hotel in Bishop Jerome's backyard and stand up and say, my name is Hillary Draper and I'm an alcoholic. I just... Whoo, mercy. And I told Tom that. And he reminded me, you know, if you're going to get a sponsor, 
and you're going to tell them everything. You're going to leave yourself wide open. And Tom had an awful raspy voice. God love him. And I told him I couldn't do that, that I wasn't, I wasn't well enough for that. And he said to me, nah. And who was it? As a friend of AA, got up at a tri-state convention in Kentucky at Cumberland Falls 10 or 15 years ago and outraged AA with your pride. Maybe you can go over there to Mississippi and make some amends to the people you so insulted. Now that's laying it to you. <laughs> JPM was the chairman. I'll never forget that. And the one thing that really comforted me, and unfortunately there's only one who came today, but from the noble group of Alcoholics Anonymous at Coleman to that convention, Oh, I guess there must have been two carloads of drunks who came to hold me up and to support me. And there were friends that I met that convention who have lasted in AA those ten years. And for all those reasons, I am particularly delighted to be here this morning. With that as a special introduction, what a convention you've had, Pacey, I'm telling you. Despite the heat, and that's been awful, but who cares? Go roll around in the swimming pool if you're that hot. Or if you've got smarts like me, get up here in that corner, right over there. <laughs> Just as cool as it can be. No trouble at all. But you had the folks on Friday... And you had the one without English last night. And if this was an oratorical contest, I'd go home right now. But you see, one thing Tom Pettis told me was that it is not an oratorical contest. And that I am not here to outdo any other speaker. And that all I can do is stand up and tell my story as well as I can tell it. And if I do that, then I'm the best speaker y'all ever heard. But it is a joy to be playing in the major leagues. <laughs> there is a great friend of mine from southwest Louisiana. Oh, no, I guess it's north Louisiana. I never can keep it straight. And he'll stand up and he'll say, My name is Hillary Draper, and I'm an alcoholic. And he'll say, Now that tells you who I am and what I am. And when the two of us got up this morning, the who said to the what, we ain't going to take a drink, and that's the way it's been all day long. But he says it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that we'd get up and the who would say to the what, we ain't going to take a drink today, and the what would say, who said so? <laughs> and the who would say, I said so. And the what would say, just wait and see. And the what would get drunk, and the who would have the hangover. <laughs> that's Dr. Tom. He wouldn't mind me. I think that's a marvelous opening. And then I used to stand up and say, and I'm a little bit embarrassed that the, the uh, I had it here, the programs got me down as Abbott Hillary D., you know. And I used to stand up and say, my name is Father Hillary and I'm a recovering alcoholic. And that same sponsor got me after about six months of that and he said, yeah, there you are going around standing up and saying your name is Father Hillary, like you something. 
He said, you better stand up and say your name is Hillary Draper. You ain't nothing but a drunk. Ooh, I had mean sponsors. But I needed them. This clock now says 20 minutes to 2. <laughs> Would you kindly adjust it? <laughs> 20 minutes to 2. <laughs> and so, really, my name is Hillary Draper, and I am a drunk. I am a recovering alcoholic. And there's one other part of that 1971 Mississippi story. At that uh, time on the speaker's group, there was a... Baptist minister who had recovered his sobriety and who had gotten into the church. And there was a Jewish dentist from Dallas who is still very active in the program and a great friend of mine. And when the Jewish dentist stood up to talk at that 71 convention, he says, I don't believe you could find what we have got here anywhere except in an AA conference. He says, here we've got a Baptist minister, a Jewish dentist, and a drunk monk on the same program. <laughs> I'm really not happy with that nickname, but it's stuck and that's all I can do about it. I can't change it. It's all right. I love him very much. I've heard it said in AA... I was born at a very early age in a good Christian home so much that I'm not convinced that's any way as to raise children anymore. But at any rate, I was born at a very early age in a good Christian home. And that home was Catholic. And we did not think it was seriously morally wrong to drink in moderation. I cannot tell you when I had my first drink. It was always there. This Jewish dentist says they gave it to him when he was circumcised. He may have beaten me by a few days. It wasn't that we drank every day, but we did. When company was there, the feast days, it was part and parcel of living. I cannot tell you when I had my first drink. It was always there. I can't remember that I got into trouble from drinking as a young man. I know that we Catholics regarded drunkenness as seriously morally wrong, just like the Baptists and some of the Methodists do. But there is a Catholic man of letters in the last generation named Chesterton, and he is famous for having said, Wherever a Catholic sun doth shine, there's sure to be laughter and good red wine. At least I have always found it so, Benedict Commons Domino, which means thanks be to God. And if it could be said of anybody that he had an education in how to drink like a gentleman, it should have been me. I saw drunkenness. I came from a great big family. Uncles and aunts galore, cousins by the dozens. And whenever that tribe would come together to celebrate a wedding or a funeral, there was one uncle, call him Harry, who was the leader of the pack. And Uncle Harry would always be taking one more drink to steady his nerves. The only thing is he'd get so steady he couldn't move and they'd have to carry him home. But I can remember my mother saying to us kids, you saw your Uncle Harry last night. If that's the way alcohol treats you, then you just shouldn't drink. But you saw the rest of your uncles and aunts, perfect ladies and gentlemen. So it could be said to me, you know, no trouble with drinking. Uh, my father was dead. 
when I was four years old. And I know today <clears throat> that I resented Almighty God terribly for that. I had a marvelous grandfather who was the male image in my life, a marvelous mother who did her very best to supply the missing link, but it was not the same. The other kids had fathers. I did not. I know today I resented that terribly. When I was 15 years old, my mother, thinking I needed more men in my education, I say she sold me up the river from Mobile, Alabama, to the tender mercies of the Benedictine monks at Coleman, and I never got away. And when I got to Coleman, 15 years old, and got in with the families of my schoolmates, the housewives of Coleman in that far-off age, wait the name, all knew how to squeeze the grape and make that German-type grape juice. Only they did it with Coleman County strawberries. And if you all haven't tasted Coleman County strawberry wine before you got into AA, it's just too late. You'll have to wait till you get to heaven. The most gorgeous color of red I ever saw. When you took the cork off the bottle, the bouquet, the aroma, you could smell it in the next block. A kick like a Missouri mule. But no harm. A piece of cake and a small glass of homemade wine. Forty-one, I loved everything about Coleman St. Bernard so much, I wanted to know if I could join the monastery. They said I could try. And forty years ago, imagine that, where's the time gone? I took the veil, and I entered the monastery. And you know what I discovered, the first thing? The monks were not about to be outdone by the housewives of Coleman. And they, too, now knew how to squeeze that grape and make that German-type grape juice. And they made a little homebrew on the side. <laughs> now, I wouldn't want you to think there's 50 drunk monks at Coleman. There's not. There's me and the rest of them pretty normal. And we didn't drink every day. But on the big feast days, for an hour after Vespers, the community would come together. Gemütlichkeit, kite, if you know the German word. The homebrew, the homemade wine, pink lemonade for the panty waist. Conversations, cigars, lovely. But looking back, I can see it meant something different to me. I was always the first one there and the last one to leave. I was always figuring out when is the next time this is going to happen. I never knew when you took the cork out of the bottle or unscrewed the cap, you did anything with that but throw it away. Because if I was there, you were not going to need it. My pattern of drinking was as follows to drink as much as I could, as often as I could, as long as I could, whenever I could. The only thing that ever stopped me from drinking from the time I was 19 years old is if I was too sick to drink anymore or there was nothing left to drink. Those are the only few things that ever stopped me. And I didn't realize that my drinking was abnormal. I could identify with a speaker last night who said he liked the taste of it. I've heard people say they didn't. I love the taste of it. I take a great big mouthful swallow it real slow, swish it around my esophagus and suck my teeth. Yeah. If that bothers you, I'm sorry, but that's the way it was for me. Yeah. I never understood these people who could take a big swallow and say, <laughs> Not me. I'd swallow and say, ah. Oh, Lord. I used to wonder, you know, after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, why am I an alcoholic? With my splendid aristocratic background, my tremendous education, the degrees, university, ordained minister, 
theologian, at least of the second water, what in the hell am I doing a drunk? <laughs> Would you believe I asked the group? <laughs> it was in a closed meeting. Thank God for that. I'd been in the group at least two years, so I had some little measure of sobriety, and I said, I just want to know. How come I'm an alcoholic? I really did. Now, there came this silence over the group. If you are in AA, you know. It's the silence when everybody knows the answer, and they're waiting to see who's going to zap the fool. And finally, my third sponsor, Juby, says, Oh, hell, Father Hillary. It don't make no difference how the jackass got into the ditch. Just get him out. How about the wisdom of the ages, huh? Man, I taught psychology, and I could talk to you on that thesis for an hour. I'm not going to do it. But there's AA. says it doesn't make a bit of difference how Hillary Draper got into the ditch of alcoholism. Get the jackass out. And for today, AA and the blessed program of AA and my higher power, you all have let this jackass out of the ditch. And for that, I'll be everlastingly grateful. I didn't know what alcoholism was. I knew what drunkenness was. But I didn't know what alcoholism was. I've learned from the big book that it's a disease that'll kill you. It's a disease that involves the totality of the human person. It's a disease which ties up a mental obsession to drink with a physical compulsion to drink. That it'll take you apart spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and finally physically. That it'll eat you alive. It'll take everything you've got if it's alcoholism, great day in the morning. And I didn't know I had it. I didn't know I had it. Sweet. Oh, I know. The big book says I'm supposed to say what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. I can tell you that right shortly. What I was like, a towering ego, absolutely a manager of the first order. I would be anything you wanted me to be. A consummate liar, because I always wanted to look better than I really was. Not content with what I had, which was an abundance. Always wanting something that I didn't have. The big book describes me perfectly. Self will run riot. And I didn't even know it. What happened? As a direct result of drinking alcohol, I lost the two things that meant the most to me in life. Namely, my priesthood. And secondly, St. Bernard, the monks at Coleman, as a direct result of drinking, of drunkenness, which was alcoholic. What am I like today? Because of this blessed program, which I firmly believe is inspired, and with the help of a higher power whom I choose to call God, and people not just like you, many of you people, I'm trying to do what St. Paul says to live soberly and justly in this world a day at a time. That's what I'm trying to do. He didn't say a day at a time, but if he'd been with us, he'd have known he'd bought us saying. <laughs> to live soberly and justly in this world a day at a time. And you know what? The older I'm getting, the more fun I'm having. I have only one resentment that I clutch to my breast 
and night shoot day after day after day. The rest of them I get rid of. The resentment that I really pulled in my breast are these people, 22 years old, who come up and I say, how long are you in the program? They say, a year and a half, two years. I say, you happy? They say, yeah. And I have envied them the years that they have got of happy sobriety living that I haven't got. And I believe I'm entitled to that resentment, and I'm going to keep it. That's all there is to it. Oh, Lord. The first sign that, overt sign that drinking was getting the best of me was in 41, Christmas time. I had joined the monastery, and I told you the monks had these parties. And at Christmas time, we were having a big one. And you know what happened to me? Christmas, I went into a blackout. You know what that is? I'm afraid you don't, so I'll explain it. You drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink, and the body, in order to safeguard its own life, short-circuit some of the systems, you go unconscious, you slide under the table, and there you stay until the next morning or some of the friends help you home. That is not blacking out, that's passing out, and I've done that too. But in blacking out, you drink and drink and drink, and again, the body, in order to safeguard its own life, short-circuit some of the systems. This time, however, you go into, quote, temporary amnesia, quote. We continue to function, quote, normally, quote, but we have absolutely no recollection of it. Now, we have cases on record where people have flown airplanes from New York to San Francisco, gone in the bar and had a few more drinks and flown back to New York and haven't had the slightest memory of it. Haven't had the slightest memory of it. It's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. And there I was in a monastery at Christmas, 19 years old, and I'm experiencing a blackout. People do not join monasteries to become drunks. They join monasteries as a kind of special Christian witness. And there we were having a Christmas party, and the next morning it occurs to me that I don't remember two or three hours out of that party. <laughs> now, today, I know that way back in the back of my mind, when I asked myself the question, what caused that loss of memory, I was convinced that it was alcohol. But you see, I loved everything there was about alcohol at that time. And I was not about to admit that anything that I loved as much as that could do anything bad for me. But being an intelligent kid, I had to reach a conclusion. What caused that loss of memory, that blackout? And I came to the conclusion that it was the cheese. And I'm leery about eating cheese today. That's a lie. We say alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. I think alcoholics are cunning, baffling, and powerful. We say that alcoholics are con men. And I think the people we con the waste are ourselves. You know? Everybody knows he's an alcoholic. His wife knows it. His boss knows it. His children know it. His dog knows it. Have you ever seen an alcoholic's dog? Seriously. Let the old man come in crocked and the dog gone. It's like he just smells bad. He won't stay in that room with that alcoholic. And if you lock the door on him, he goes crazy trying to get away from him. And yet we're the last ones to realize or to be able to admit that we've got the problem. There it is, 19 years old. That's almost a Satan, Satan sign you've got it. That you're one of these people who will never be able to handle alcohol. That you've got this mental obsession tied up with this physical compulsion to drink. And it's going to destroy you if you don't quit. 
I often wonder if somebody who knew anything about alcoholism could have spoken to me at that time, before my will was so damaged, or my intellect so darkened, and said, you're one of those people, if I could have been spared, the agents would come. I don't know. I don't know. But it's useless. It's over with. That's, that's all. I guess the next time there's any overt sign, my pattern is established. I told you that. I always drink as much as I can, as often as I can, as long as I can. But being in a monastery, that's difficult. Now, I'm not going to explain to you how I got my supply. That's none of your business. But I'm firmly convinced. You know, you put an alcoholic in the hospital to dry him out. And in two days, he's got the whole taxi company organized, bringing in the booze. You know? You lock him up, and he's got pulleys arranged, pulling him up through the bars. You think I'm joking? I'm not. And that's why it's almost impossible you try to control a, a, an alcoholic's drinking. That's useless. We tried to do that on a national scale, and it didn't work. Absolutely useless. But what is happening to me is my personality is changing. I have been ordained a priest in 47, and I think by that time I was well over the line of uncontrolled drinking. If there had been any old fight signs, believe me, I would not have been called to orders. The Catholic Church has got enough trouble without ordaining drunk monks. The opportunities for drinking are more frequent. I begin to get these terrible personality clashes with the boss. Now, you can get personality clashes with many things, and if there's enough goodwill, you can resolve them. But if alcohol is in the picture, you're not going to resolve anything to resolve the alcohol. And alcohol is in the picture. I was associate principal of a real fancy prep school that we were running at that time. I was teaching five classes a day. I didn't think they could run that place without me. And if the old man had said to me one word about maybe you're drinking too much, I'd have been on him like a bee on a bulldog. I said, what are you talking about? You know, some of these bums over here are not doing a blessed thing. I'm teaching five classes a day. I'm running this school. And if I am drinking too much, I'm not hating anybody but me, which was a lie. I wasn't the teacher I could have been. I wasn't doing the job I could have been doing. But no, he doesn't face me down. Nobody wants to tangle with an alcoholic. The police will tell you that. The people they hate ways to arrest are alcoholics. They'll tell you. Do anything to avoid arresting us. We stick up there and make them do it. Oh, Lord. But anyhow, I got a geographical cure removal before I knew what that was. You see, by that time, the boss and I weren't talking. We were corresponding by letter, although I lived two doors down from him in the same house. Does that strike a familiar call with some of you husbands and wives? Yeah. And this letter said, go to Barberville, Kentucky and replace the priest there. And where in the Lord's holy name is Barberville, Kentucky? And some wag of a monk says, you go to hell, turn left, and walk three miles. He was wrong. He was only two miles. Oh, Lord have mercy. It was back in the 50s. President Johnson declared it a disaster area, the Cumberland Gap area, where Tennessee, Virginia, and uh, Kentucky come together. Lord have mercy on my poor soul. It was nowheresville. And I got up there the second morning I was there. Well, it was the first morning. And the priest I was replacing, they said mass. He said, we have your, your meals over next door at Aunt Sally Coon's house. That's your house. But Uncle Albert is a retired miner, and he's a Catholic. And he watches the property while you ride the circuits. I'm going to ride the circuits yet. Oh, yeah. And said, so whenever you're home, they feed you. So we go over, and Sally belongs to the Lottie Moon cycle. She's got the old priest broken in. She really doesn't want a new one. 
And it was hot September. Conversation was difficult. Oh, Lord. Sitting at the kitchen table, Uncle Albert, a lovely man in his 60s. Me, the other priest, Uncle Albert's son. He was a state trooper in his 30s. All he had on was a pass chart. His two sons, 17, 19. As I say, conversation was difficult. Sitting in front of me is a big water tumbler, beaded, cold. I picked it up and took two great big swallows. Well, you've seen the atomic bomb blast. My eyeballs turned over. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. My hair was shaking. Now, again, in retrospect, I'm convinced that if I hadn't been an alcoholic, I would have screamed bloody murder. But all I do is hold on tight till the tremors pass. <laughs> Uncle Albert's got one. The other priest has got one. The trooper's got one. The other two haven't. Well, when that breakfast was over, the priest and I were stepping high over the weeds going back to the church. And I said to him, in the Lord's holy name, what was in the water glass? He said, moonshine, 120 proof. I said, for breakfast? He says, anytime you can get it. I'm telling you the truth, you know. What a place to send a budding alcoholic. And I bloomed. It was there, some of this I haven't been able to tell, it was there that I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in the Kentucky mountains. The priest I was replaced says, you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, no, just it's something for poor devils that can't drink. He said, yeah, he said, well, there's a nice group here. I've been instrumental in getting them started. And incidentally, he came into the program later. But he said, they're none of your members, but some of the spouses of your members. Maybe you'd like to work with them. I said, sure, I'll help them. Do anything I can for them. You know, cure them. So I go to the meeting. They give me the big book. This is true. Now, we never say about one alcoholic, another one, he's an alcoholic. You never say that. I got to say, I'm an alcoholic. But if he looks like a duck, he smells like a duck, he quacks like a duck, he waddles like a duck, most likely he's a duck. And if it's true that you cannot fool one alcoholic about another alcoholic, then I am convinced that the subject of the closed meetings in Barberville, Kentucky in the 50s many times was, what are we going to do about this young priest at the end of Pine Street who walks like a duck, who smells like a duck, who looks like a duck, and who doesn't know he's a duck? You see, they wouldn't let me go to the closed meetings, and I was convinced if they would, I could help the poor devils. The pride, the towering eagle. And it was that group that got me to speak at the Tri-State Convention. You know, it's a wonder they weren't tarred and feathered by the convention when it was all over. That me and my pride and arrogance talked down to them. Oh, Lord have mercy. I did read the big book, and I said, it's a lovely program for my brother Tom. My drinking progressed five years in Kentucky. I said I didn't get into any trouble, but that's not true. I wasn't doing the job I could have been doing. You know, serious drinking takes time. Have you ever noticed two friends run into one another and he'd say, hey, Tom, let's go and have a couple of drinks before supper or whatever. Say, fine. And they step into a bar if you're on the coast and they have a couple of drinks and they go home. But watch two alcoholics. One spies the other and his eyes light up and the bells ring, you know. And he says, hey, Tom, let's go do some drinking. They don't go take a couple of drinks. They're going to do some drinking. And doing drinking takes time. Takes a lot of time. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. I was doing a lot of drinking in in Kentucky. I was recalled and was dean of the college for six years. By this time, I'm hooked. 
I got to have it. I don't have to drink it every day, but I got to have it in the closet where I can read the labels, shake it, and see the frog eyes on it in case I wanted to celebrate Hungarian Freedom Fighters Day or Snake Fight. Now, normal drinkers don't do that, but I did, and my pattern was the same. Once I started, I didn't quit until there was nothing left or I was too sick to keep on drinking. And once again, after six years, these terrible patterns are developing with the boss. But this time, my personality is changing. I'm a prepared coward. When the gentleman last night said, you know, he just loved to have a fight, I didn't. If you said boo to me, I'd run. Still will. But my personality was changed. I wake up in the morning and I say, who broke the dollar? They said, you put your fist right through it. I said, me? They said, yeah, and if you could have caught Father Malachi, you would have killed him. I said, no, no, no. said, yeah, you're getting so loud, you can get the habit down on us. It got to where nobody wanted to associate with me anymore. This lonesomeness. If they were going to have a party, they'd say, don't invite Hillary. Don't let him know about it. And so I get another geographical cure removal, this time to the delta of the Mississippi. And I'm not talking about southwest Louisiana. I'm talking about the area in Mississippi that starts at the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, and comes down the river 40 miles on the Mississippi side and 20 miles on the Arkansas side, you come to Yazoo City. And if you all haven't lived in the Delta, you don't know one blessed thing about the South. Those people don't know the Civil War was lost. They don't even know it was fought and couldn't care less. God help. The long, hot summers of the 60s. You know, Mississippi was dry, dry, worst place I'd ever been. I had awful trouble getting whiskey. But there I was in Shaw, Mississippi, pick up the telephone and say, Mamie, she say, be right there, Father. Father Malachi tells me when I tell you that story for you to realize that Mamie was a bootlegger. And maybe would come, take the dead soldiers out, give them decent Christian burial, put in new recruits, and send you a bill at the end of the month. Made in the shade. You know, hot dog, you know. There it was. The only thing you had to worry about was paying for it. Well, where did you ever find an alcoholic who couldn't pay for booze? Can't pay for anything else, but he sure paid for drinks. You know, everything was just fine. Just lovely. Except, as the big book says, I was coming to part of the scenes. I was coming about spiritually and emotionally. I was supposed to be a priest. I was supposed to be filling a pulpit, preaching on Sundays. I got to where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I really couldn't. The burden of guilt. And then people were beginning to talk ugly about me, you know? You think you can hide it. Nobody knows it. The big book says there comes a time when we can no longer tell the difference between truth and falsity. And I think that time comes early on in the alcoholic's career. But there comes a time, yeah, the priest would say to me, Hey, Father Henry, you better watch out. Forty hours devotion over in Leland. You couldn't drive home. We had to bring you home. I said it was the cheese. All kinds of bad things are beginning to happen. Try this one on the side. Where's the automobile? It's not your car. It costs $7,000. Where is the car? We want the automobile. I don't know where the automobile is. I got it in the garage in Memphis, getting it repaired. Which garage? 
line, line, line. And what is true, you know, you, you, you were too drunk, and so you left the automobile in Greenville, and somebody brought you home, and they haven't got the car back to you yet. It's safe and sound. But you know where it is? And normal people don't lose automobiles. Oh, knows. Three of the finest people I ever met in Mississippi came to me as a delegation. Three wonderful men to say, Father Hillary, we love you very much. You're doing a great job up here. But you cannot deny that on Satan, Satan occasions you have been under the influence of alcohol in public. And what they meant was falling down drunk. And they said, we're not going to go to Bishop Giroux over this, because this is this. Because they said, we know that with a little willpower, the grace of the sacraments, and prayer, you can get on top of this. And I believed them, the more fool I, you know. What willpower? The first step of the program is, my life is unmanageable, I'm powerless over alcohol. What grace of the sacraments? I had abused, uh, and I'm still making amends as a church man for the time when I exercised uh, the office of the priesthood under the influence, and I was a disgrace. I can just shake when I tell you that. How do you bear that burden of guilt? What grace of the sacraments? There wasn't any grace left for me. God hadn't left me. I had left him. What prayer? I knew how to pray once upon a time, but in the last years of my alcoholism, the only prayer I knew to say was, Dear God, get me out of this one, and I'll never do it again. And my sponsor, Juby, says, Oh, hell, Father Hillary, God ain't no horse traders. He don't need your damn horses. <laughs> Think that one over. The step three in this blessed program doesn't say we bargain with God. Dear Lord, you do this and I'll do that. Dear God, I'll do this and you do that. No, no. It says, made a decision to turn our lives, our wills and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. No, no. The alcoholic who takes the third step walks up to God as he understands him and says, Dear Lord, I've had it. I am just absolutely bankrupt. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And he throws up his hands and he falls into the merciful arms of God. That's the truth. My old sponsor used to say that he didn't know a single alcoholic who didn't have a problem in two areas. One, the God area, and the other, the sex area. And he said, when you get them into the program, you've got to go easy with both for a while. But I heard something the other day, just recently, that really tickled me. The AA is having a lot of problem with the third step. Maybe this will help. It said, made a decision to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And God said, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> now, how's that for reducing your ego? <laughs> oh, Lord. So that's not the end of the story. We had a new boss back at Coleman. Yankee from Minnesota. Dumb as hell. Turned out to be my savior, and I love him today more than I love anybody else in the whole wide world. He'd come down to Coleman as the abbot, the boss, and he was on his way to Dallas. Sent me word he was going to spend the night in Shaw. Well, Lord, you never saw anybody clean up so quick. And we got those Italians out, and we had anti-anti-pasta, and we had anti-pasta, and we had pasta fazuli, and we had 
three kinds of chicken and ham. We had a dinner. We had drinks before dinner. We had two kinds of wine at dinner. We had dessert wine and drinks after. I didn't touch a thing. The next morning, the old man's getting in the car ready to go, and I said to his aide de camp, what did he want? He said, didn't he talk to you last night? I said, no, no more than he talked to anybody else. Well, he said, he's the chancellor of the board, and you have been nominated as the seventh president of St. Bernard College. And he said before he acted on the nomination, he was going to come over here and interview you. And he told me last night when we were going to bed, he was well pleased that he's going to accept the nomination. And I got the bid to be president of the college. Now, watch the towering ego. Anybody with my track record would have said, I cannot take that job. It's too much for me. What does the towering ego of the alcoholic say? Of course I'll take that job. You don't reckon they'd be offering to a drunk. That'll show these people whether I got a drinking problem or not. They gave me a glorious send-off. I know today they were saying, thank God he's gone. But today I can hold up my head. I've been able to make amends in Shaw in the Delta. I can go back. But I came across and was president for three and a half years, and they were horrendous. Everything that didn't happen up until then did. I mean, everything that a drunk goes through, you know, the running fits, the shakes, the sweats, the lies. How's this one for a good time? Where's the money? What money? You had a pocket full of money last night. You haven't got any this morning. Where's the money? I don't know where's the money. Well, who's going to pay it back? I don't know that either. Well, how about this one, you know? The, oh, I don't like to tell you this. A Catholic priest in a position of adoration before the commode. That strike a point? The dry heaves. Oh, Lord have mercy. The fear when the telephone rings, the hallucinations. Yeah, hallucinations. Me. Everything. How about this one? Jail. You know, I'm, I've heard AA people say they've been in jail every state in the Union. I've only been in one, and I don't want to go again. I'm not proud of it. President of the college, dressed up just like I am this morning, without the gold chains. Three o'clock in the morning, I wake up. I think, man, I'm on a funny bed. Got no mattress, just a spring, no pillow. I got one eye open and there was bars at the window. I thought, oh, Lord, I played hell this time. I crept to the window to try to find out where I was. And the way that jail was built, I think it was done for psychological reasons, you could not tell. I couldn't tell if I was in Mobile, Montgomery, New Orleans, Biloxi, or Rome, Italy. There wasn't any way I could tell. That should have done it, you know. President of the college. Up there with his Roman collar on a priest. But there are two groups of people, alcoholics, whom I think frequently get protected almost to death. Number one is ministers. Nobody wants to admit that the priest or the minister is a drunk. In our church, they say, he's a lovely father, but he's got the failings. They won't even say the name. He's got the failing. Nobody wants to admit that the preacher has got a problem with drinking, and therefore he gets frequently protected to death. The other group is women. No successful man wants to admit that his wife is a drunk. She's got nerves. She's had too many children. 
she hasn't had enough children. It's his mother. It's her mother. Hell, it's drinking. And you say, I should have been racked up. But do you know I was enabled? The board of trustees never found out that their fancy president was laid up in the jail for drunk and disorderly, you know, driving under the influence. God bless and save us. In a total blackout. There was another year of unmitigated hell. You read in the big book where it talks about stark fear and loneliness in the very last chapter. These things closing down in on you again. Because I never in my life intended to get drunk. And every time I'd drink, I'd say, it's going to be different this time. And it always was. It was worse. It was worse. Oh, merciful heavens. I don't know. I hope I, I've said enough. In December of 1967 came the, the end, the bottom for me. The president was to give a State of the Union message in front of all the important people of the college. The Board of Trustees, the Board of Governors, the Faculty Senate, the Student Government Association, 300 people at a dinner at night, 8 o'clock. And I gave that speech. The only thing is, the last thing I remember is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I was taking one more drink to steady my nerves. And I was in a blackout. And when I tell you that, I really begin to sweat. Because I can imagine what embarrassment it was for those people to sit and see and hear the obviously drunken priest president trying to stagger through that report. That did it. There was a special call meeting of the Board of Trustees, only one thing on the agenda, namely Father Hillary's resignation. And in a few days, I happened to be in the boss's office throwing dust, as you usually do, to keep people from finding out what's really happening. He said, sit back, I want to say something to you. And he read me the riot act in three or four or five beautiful technicolor scenes. He told me in no uncertain terms that I was an absolute disgrace to my own good name, that I had done my best to destroy the name of that college, that I had dragged that monastery through orgies of drunkenness. Oh, man, he just laid it on me in no uncertain terms that I was absolutely rotten and that was it, and that they had had enough of me and I could get away from that monastery and stay away from it. I don't know whether I can make you understand what that said to me. The two things I loved in life the most was that monastery and my priesthood. And that day in December, as far as I knew, they were both gone. You couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The old man said to me, I'll help you get a job at any school in the country. You're a good teacher. You cannot stay here. But what I wish you'd do is go somewhere, get some help with your drinking problem. He doesn't even know the word alcoholism. And I said, yes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, I really mean it. I'm afraid that if I had said no at that point, I'd be dead today. I'd be hopelessly insane. I could not have borne the burden of guilt. Because let me tell you what happened. As I walked out of that office, having lost everything that meant anything to me, you know what I did? I went right straight downstairs to my room and had another drink to steady my nerves. Having just lost everything as a direct result of drinking alcohol, I'm down there taking another nip at the tit of old Betsy. If that's not insanity, I don't know what is. And I never knew for a long time what let me say yes, I would go and do anything I could. I'm convinced today it was the Al-Anon type of people who had loved me so desperately who knew nothing to do for me but to pray. And I got sent to a place called Hazelden. 
It had a reputation for doing good for people who were bad to drink. <laughs> They're all what I call gold-plated south craps. They'll take you up, dry you out, introduce you to the pills, and turn you loose to run again. There's no such thing as an alcoholic treatment center. There are treatment centers that use this blessed program to try to help us learn how to stay sober. And that was Hazelden in 68. I'll never forget. I didn't know whether they stuff something up in you, whether they cut something out of you, whether they turned your head around, whether they blew through your ears. I didn't know what they did. I'm just up there, you know. And the first morning I was there, this is the truth. I went to see the counselor. That's not true. They took me to see the counselor. And the first thing he said to me, he says, Now, Father Hillary, it's the last time I'm going to call you Father because you ain't nothing but a goddamn drunk. They talk so ugly. Oh, it was so offensive to my pious ears. I started to call up the abbot and say, You know where you sent me? <laughs> to take off that Roman collar, you got no right to wear it. There I was, see? Up there in the treatment center for alcoholism, butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, all dressed up in the black suit and the collar, you know. They said, take it off. You got no right to wear it. It's like having to call you father. And they said, the ordinary program here is three weeks, but don't plan on three weeks to get it. I said, of course not. I reckon I'll get it in two. You see the pride, the arrogance? They said, oh, no, 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 no. We find for doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, undertakers, druggists, college professors, and ministers, it takes three and four times as long to get this simple program. <laughs> they did. I said, why? They said, because y'all keep up such a dreadful front. It takes a long time to get behind there and find out where the real Father Hillary lives. And they were right. They were right. They gave me the big book. They told it to me. And they said, read it. And I don't know if you're a Catholic. But the first thing I did was open up the big book and see if there was an imprimatur from the Catholic bishop. And of course there wasn't. And I said, huh, probably printed in Nashville, Tennessee, Baptist footwashing literature, and they're not going to brainwash me. And I wouldn't read it. No. Now, let me show you how sensible that was. Because at the same time, they sold me the little black 24-hour-a-day book. You know that one? And that's got no imprimatur from a Catholic bishop. I loved it. I read it every day, but I wouldn't read the big book. No. We had to go to three meetings a day, a few closed meetings, go to the table three times a day, about the about the shook. But after about five weeks, it became apparent to my cunning alcoholic brain that the people who were getting out of Hazelden were taking, doing, waking, step one, two, three, four, five, of the AA program and in that order. And it became further apparent to me that if I didn't take, do, work, step one, two, three, four, five, I was going to be in Hazelton until Gabriel blew his horn. And I decided I didn't want to stay that long. So one night, I sat up all night and read the big book. Did. Couldn't wait for breakfast to get over. Shot to the counselor's room. I said, I got step one. My life is unmanageable. I'm powerless over alcohol. He says, you ain't got nothing. Get back. I said, I got it. He says, you are loaded with resentments. I said, I don't resent anybody. Just like that. 
God. I resented the dear Lord. I resented God. I resented the bishop. I resented the abbot. I resented everybody. The blindness. Oh, Lord. I was one of the slowest learners. I was there at least eight weeks. You figure it out. Three meetings a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meetings. Eight times 21 is 168 meetings that I went to the first two months I was dry. Is there any wonder I believe in going to meetings? If, if I'm sponsoring you, you're going to go to meetings. That's all there is to it. My sponsor finally pointed out that there's only three points to this simple program. You keep the cork in the jug. You don't take the first drink. You go to meetings and you read the big book. You read the big book. You don't take the first drink. You go to meetings. You go to meetings. You read the big book. You don't take a drink. You don't take a drink. You go to meetings. You read the big book. Now, if you're slipping, that means you're not reading the big book or you're not going to the meetings or you're taking the first drink. It's that simple, you know? Honestly. Oh, yeah. You see, the gorgeous part about that is the truly simple things are the things that lead to the greatest effects. I don't know whether I want to go into that. I'm not going to. Anyhow, they finally let me go. I am convinced that I did not get step one until I was approximately two years dry and I had gotten to the master teachers at Coleman, Alabama. I wish I could tell you, I left Coleman on January the 14th. I got back to Coleman at the end of August. I wish I could tell you I got in AA right away and everything went happy ever after. I looked up in the phone book and they weren't in the phone book. I came to the conclusion they were not in Coleman. So I stayed alone from August to January. I did read the big book and I did read the 24-hour uh, day book, and I shared my experience and strength with people I thought it would help. <laughs> and there was a priest, non-alcoholic, who loved me very much. He used to say, aren't you supposed to be going to some kind of meetings or something? I'd say, yeah, but they don't have them in Coleman. He'd say, well, surely they have them in Decatur. That's only 30 miles up the line. You can go. I said, I don't need them. I read the big book. You know, Hazelden was not free of charge. They charged a fortune even in those days. And here I am, six, eight weeks paying like mad through the nose to get this simple program, and I come home and I haven't got enough sense to go to the meeting. Talk about a dumb learner. I'm convinced I was getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And in December of that year, the same priest came to me and he had a telephone number. He said, for your information, AA is alive and well in Coleman, call this number. I can't find it. He can find it. Three days. Each day he said to me, did you call? I said, yeah, they didn't answer. He said, finally, when did you call? I said, midnight. I'm not proud of that. He said, call now. I went to the telephone, I rang that number, and I got Juby. <laughs> I didn't know Juby from Adam's house. He's my main sponsor today. The other two have gone to heaven. I wore them out. I said, Mr. G, this is Father Hillary out to college. I'm an alcoholic and I need to go to a meeting. About just like that. And there was this long silence on the telephone and I found out what realists, AA people are. The first time he ever, the first thing he ever said to me was, Father, are you drunk now? <laughs> you know what I mean? That was important to find out. I said, of course not. He said, well, it so happens that we have a meeting this evening at 8 o'clock. I'll come and get you about 7.30, take you to the club room. 
I said, that's fine, Mr. G., but don't come to the front door of the college. I'll meet you down on the road to the cemetery by the grotto in the full of the moon under the pine trees. Now, again, I'm not proud of that, but that's the truth. And if you come to Coleman, I'll show you the road to the cemetery under the pine trees in the dark of the moon when Juvie came to put out the hand to this dumb alcoholic. And somebody didn't say to me, when you want what we've got and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, call me back. They didn't say that. I wish I could tell you that I walked up the steps over the pool room where we still meet, and I went into there and it was glory, hallelujah. Oh, it was miserable. A little bitty room about 14 by 14. The plaster was coming down off the ceiling. One naked light bulb hanging down. The wallpaper was coming down. There was an old sofa with broken springs coming out. And all I could see was foot washing Baptists. A church of Christ. And I thought, oh my Lord, what have I got into now? Oh, now I hate to tell you that because I don't feel that way today. In Coleman, me and the Church of Christ and the Foot Washing Baptists, we love one another like you wouldn't believe. And, and anybody in AA, you know, it doesn't matter. We're in this business together. You are my brother, you are my sister. I don't care what you are if you're in AA. I mean that. But then I, I was dumb, you see. I thought, oh dear God, if it wasn't so far to walk home, I'd go home. But it was two miles. So I thought, if I can get through this, I'll never come back again. While all that's going through my mind, here comes a lady. I had known her as a fine Catholic matron, a big church worker up in Decatur. I did not know that she was an alcoholic. Her name was Rosemary. She came out the door, and she said, Father Henry, we're so glad you're here. Come on in. You're right where you belong. You won't have any more trouble. Stay with us. She put her arm through my arm, and she took me into the meeting. Now, I shudder to think what would have happened if Rosemary hadn't been there that night. But I was in that group two years before they thought I was strong enough to tell me that that was a put-up job. What any coincidence at all. When I called Juvie, he called Rosemary in Decatur. He said, Rosie, come down to the meeting this evening at Coleman. She says, I can't. I'm chairing my own meeting. He says, I don't care what you chair. You come down here to Coleman. I got a Catholic priest coming in here. I don't know a damn thing about Catholics, much less priests. <laughs> You're a Catholic. You get down here and help me with him. And when the poor, stupid, drunken Catholic priest is trying to walk through the doors of AA, says Rosemary, with the hand of AA put out to take him in. She. Rosemary's still in the program. She's doing fine. I'll tell you, I'll walk a long way for her. I shudder to think what would have happened in my pride, my egotism, if Rosemary hadn't been there. She, come to Coleman, I'll introduce you to Rosemary. And that was the beginning. I made every mistake that you can possibly make in this program. It still worked. <laughs> they were the most tolerant and the kindest people with my stupidity. They taught me theology. Yeah. Example. One night in a closed meeting after two years or so, I said, I'm tired of this. I want to know something. I'm sober. Two years. Three years. 
And what I want to know is if I don't manage my own life, who's going to? Again, that great silence. And Juby says, well, Father, the third step said to made a decision to turn our wills and our lives, and there's other steps said sought through prayer and meditation to improve our seeking only for knowledge of his will. I said, stop, stop, stop. Don't tell anybody I asked that question. Here I a trained theologian, and I got to go to AA to learn theology. Oi! You talk about a mess. Well, I'm about time to finish. The older I'm getting, the more fun I'm having. I mean that. And I would say to any of you all who are in AA and you're not finding that same thing, then you better go examine your program again. I mean that. This is a program of recovery. We're supposed to get better, not worse. Pay attention to that. There are people, I think, in the program who give you this awful thing. My sponsors were different. That first year is going to be awful. Get through Fourth of July, get through Christmas, get through Easter. Ooh, it's awful. My sponsor says, what the hell are they talking about? Says, this is a program of recovery. You're supposed to put the cock in the bottle and get better, not worse. He said, don't give people that impression. It's supposed to be better. And I'm one of those people who say it's going to be better. I'm one of those people who say, you stay sober and good things happen. And I'm convinced there's not an AA who's in the program six months, who's really in the program, who won't agree with that statement. Oh, I know. There are people, we get them about a month, and they say, Father Harris said good things going to happen. Nothing good's happened to me. I said, come here. I want to show you something. I put a mirror up in our room. I waltz them over to the mirror. I said, look in there. I said, you had any idea what you looked like 30 days ago? I said, good things have already happened to you, buster. I'm going to tell you two good things and shut up. And by this big clock, it'll be 11 o'clock. So many good things have happened. But these two especially. In 1972, the boss man who had fired me resigned as abbot, head honcho of the monastery. And the monks come together, all the final vowed ones, not the rookies, and they lock themselves up and they pray and they start voting for the next abbot. We don't have a stove to burn the ballots in, but of course everybody's tremendously interested who is the abbot. When the election is completed, they start ringing all the church bells. And the young monks come running to say, who's the abbot? And in August of 1972, the answer was, Father Hillary is the seventh abbot of St. Bernard's. And the young monks are running all through the halls of the monastery shouting all the way with AA. <laughs> and that's what this gold chain and this big fancy ring is all about. I hate to tell the Indian I'm very important people in the Catholic Church. <laughs> I got the top hat and the gold walking stick, and I got the lace and the trains. You wouldn't believe it. And every once in a while when we have a great church service and I'm doing something, 
as I come in or out of the church, I'll see some of my brethren in AA, and they'll go, did you get that? And I'll go back and I'll go, they won't break my identity, but it's a joy, you know, it's a joy to have the opportunity to serve. Let me say something else about the monks. They're so dear to me. They really are. But they know AA. And they'll come up to me, and I'm just as happy as a lock, and they'll say, Father Abbott, you are getting awful hard to live with. You sure need to go to a meeting. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? And I used to get mad. I don't anymore. I just get in the car and go to a meeting. Come back feeling like a million dollars, you know. And that's what they, they told me. The last one is this. In 1973, I had the opportunity of going to the Holy Land of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And that would never have been possible were it not for sobriety in AA. And I had a glorious time. We were there two or two and a half weeks, and it was a VIP tour. Just gonna... But all I could do was weep. And AA had taught me that I was all right, too. All I could do as we went to the holy places was weep. There are many places that are dear to Satan people in, a, in the, the Holy Land. But for me, the one that was the most impressive was Bethany. You remember Bethany? There was a family living down there named Martha and Mary and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. And they were very dear to Jesus. And apparently, whenever he'd had it right up to here, couldn't stand any more of the foolishness of the world, he'd go down and spend a weekend at Bethany. And he was great friends with the family. He's all preaching in Upper Galilee, and the word comes to him that Lazarus is sick and dying. It's Martha who sent the word. And she evidently expects Jesus to come and cure him, as he's been curing everybody else. Let him come down and help his friends. He doesn't. The word comes that Lazarus is dead. He doesn't even get to the funeral. And then he goes down to see him. And Martha. Martha's the perfect Alamon. He didn't even get to the funeral. This hotshot rabbi who's eaten them out of house and home, who's used them time and time again, not done a blessed thing for him, not even showed up, not one postcard, nothing. And she's eyeballing the road. And he comes down the road, and she sees him, and she rushes out to meet him, and you'd have to hear the sarcasm in her voice. You can't read it in the scriptures. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. That Martha. She doesn't know how close she came to tearing the sheet. Faith an almighty power, an Al-Anon for sure. But she's also facing almighty sympathy and condolence. And Christ looks at her and loves her and says, Thy brother will rise again. And all of a sudden, Martha is changed. All of a sudden, the program is beginning to wake for Martha. And she says, Yea, Lord, I know, I know. At the last day, I know. And she's accepting. And they go into the house to condole with the relatives and the friends. And after he's been in for a while, he says, Take me out to the cemetery. I want to see the grave. And they go out, and once again, Martha's back in her Al-Anon stance. And the Lord says, Roll the stone away from the door of the tomb. She says, He's been dead four days, and now by this time he stinks. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I submit that I certainly did stink, but I know what Lazarus felt like 
when he walked out of that tomb. Thank you so much.